Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. As we open our Bibles, let us read them as A.W. Tozer said, quote, with the thought that God means exactly what he says. What a noble concept. Indeed, we could not get past Genesis 3.1 before that concept was challenged. Before the question was raised by Satan himself, hath God really said? And as we see every manner of clear teaching violated in churches today and things which are blazingly clear, which are abundantly clear, the lie of the serpent remains. Hath God really said? Yes. Yes, he hath said. He has spoken clearly in his word. And as I was writing for another reason this week, I was reminded of what we call the seven-year-old hermeneutic. This is the idea that God wrote scripture so simply that in most cases, a seven-year-old living in that time and context could understand what was written, implying that we are without excuse for what God hath said. And all of these areas of controversy within the church in America, in nearly every case, scripture is clear, clear, clear. Women's role in ministry, scripture is clear. Homosexuality, heterosexual intimacy outside of marriage, scripture is clear. We love all of these people with every fiber of our being. Yet scripture is clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Scripture is clear. But hath God really said these positions now are somehow couched as cultural warrior statements or political statements? No, these are God statements. The serpent opened his forked tongue in Genesis 3 and he hasn't closed it since. Hath God said? Yes, he hath said. And it matters not what way the culture shifts or moves. If his words are getting people sent to jail, then we're finally getting back to normality in history. Either we will view the world through the lens of Scripture or we will view Scripture through the lens of the world. We either sit in judgment over the Scriptures or Scripture sits in judgment over us. It all goes back to the question of old. Hath God really said? You're a smart, independent person, Ch Satan chided Eve. You decide. You sit in judgment. You mull it over. Hath God really said? Is that really what he meant? God said what he meant. A seven-year-old can understand it. Before our sin nature creeps in to twist Scripture to our own lusts. We must read the Scripture with simplicity and with clarity. It will say what it will say. And we will understand it. And we will either accept it or we will reject it or we will twist it. Satan chose option three in the garden. He's a twister. Therefore, be on your guard. Commit to taking God at his word. And if it grates against your views, good. Let the word do its work. If the word just flows over you like smooth honey all the time and it never burns going down, we're missing something somewhere. The strategy of the enemy has not changed. And it goes to the root of every false argument and every sinister position. Hath God really said, they ask, is that really what he meant? We live in a different time now, some say. They didn't know what we know now. 
Hath God really said? There are plenty of professing Christians doing the devil's job for him with great effectiveness, bringing doubt and a misty fog where scripture radiates with great clarity. What was Jesus' response to this tactic? Jesus' response to the lie of old from the garden was simple when he was tempted in the wilderness. Hath God really said? Did God really say? Jesus' response, it is written, it is written, it is written. Let that be our answer. And in order to know how to give that answer, in order to be able to give that answer, we have to know what is written. And that's one of the reasons we gather as the people of God this morning, that we might be able to prove what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. That we may know what God has said and we may show an unbelieving world that it is written. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we were excited to have launched into the sixth chapter of Mark. That's 37% through Mark for our mathematicians here. Or more helpfully, we are over halfway through Jesus' time of ministry on earth. Last week was a scene of great tragedy. A cautionary tale coming to us from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Having tried to kill Jesus the first time he visited by trying to throw him off a cliff. In compassion and in love, Jesus visits yet a second time, only to be mocked and jeered as not only an illegitimate son of Mary, but as a blue-collar nobody from Nowheresville. Their unbelief was so persistent and so all-consuming that it caused Jesus to marvel. One of only two places in Scripture where Jesus marveled, that he was amazed. He was dumbstruck. Jesus did not just return to his family he grew up with. He spoke in the very synagogue he was raised in. He spoke bold truth to those who were most familiar with him. The hardest people you will ever share your faith with are those who are closest to you. Not just because you know them well, but because they know you well. You may have a past. They may have known you when sin marked your life, when you walked in the way of the world. And now, who are you to bring all this Jesus business around? I know who you really are. I knew you back when... Fill in the blank. None of that matters. Jesus had a flawless childhood. No past whatsoever. No sin for them to point to, to shame him. Yet they could not get past their familiarity that bred such unbelief and such hostility. And if they did it to him, saints, they will do it to you. A servant is not greater than his master. You may have a past, but if you have been made new in Christ, if you are a new creation, what you were is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Just don't expect those who knew you to jump for joy. Didn't happen to Jesus. It won't happen for you. So rejoice and be a happy warrior in your family, walking in all wisdom and in all gentleness. Yet in our scene last week, we call it a tragedy, didn't we? We called it a tragedy. And the tragedy was not that he performed very few miracles out of choice in Nazareth, but that when he left, he took with him the greatest miracle on this side of eternity. He took salvation with him. The light that shone so brightly among them was not a light unto illumination anymore. It was a light unto judgment. When he left, salvation left with him. The greater the light we have, the greater the responsibility. 
The more knowledge you have, the more accountable you are. The very light of the world came to you in Nazareth twice, proclaiming the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Speaking like no man spake, he blinded them with the truth, yet they rejected him. They attacked him. They verbally assaulted him. They simply would not hear it. And because of the light that so shined brightly in Nazareth, great will be the judgment of that city, of that village. It will no doubt be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day. You'll recall at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, that Jesus went away from there. Talking about Capernaum. And this was not just a temporary visit away from Capernaum to go see family in Nazareth. No, this was Jesus closing up shop in Capernaum as ministry HQ. Not that Jesus would completely leave the area, but he would no longer be headquartered out of Peter's home here. And we saw at the end of our text last week, verse 6, 6 verse 6, that Jesus went out from Nazareth and he began teaching among the different villages. And this sets our scene for us today as we're about to witness the next phase of Jesus' ministry. What we're about to see has never happened before. We might say we're heading into the second quarter on our way to halftime. And oftentimes, coaches make strategy moves here, don't they? If they're ahead, they may put in other players from the bench. They may change up the team to keep the other guys guessing, to continue our march up the scoreboard. Indeed, in our scene today, the coach is bringing in the second string. See, there's only one player on first string, and that's Jesus Christ, Son of God. And up until this point, he was the coach. He was the quarterback. He threw it to himself. He ran it himself. He scored himself. All the while, the second string was sitting on the bench, watching and waiting and learning. And when the stage had been perfectly set, when the players have seen the coach determine that they determined that he had they had seen what they needed to see, he is putting them in the game. And up until this point, all the healing, all the casting out of demons, all the miracles were the purview of Messiah alone. And in fact, as we look at the last verse of last week's message in verse 6, what do we see he was doing? Who, what do we see was who was doing the teaching and preaching? It says he. He was doing the teaching and preaching, meaning Jesus. Well, today all that is going to change. And it needed to change. Not from the aspect of a spiritual timetable, but logistically it had to change. You see, up to this point, if you wanted to touch the ministry of Jesus... If you wanted to observe it, if you wanted to take it in, even participate in it, you had to be where Jesus was because he was it. He was the man. This is only going to cause the crowds to grow and grow. And eventually ministry is going to be impossible. We've got to spread this out. And so he will. And today, 12 men who have been watching, questioning, learning, fretting, fearing, beholding are about to be commissioned. They're about to be sanctioned and empowered. It was game day. And the ministry of the gospel is about to change. It's about to multiply. And while these men are giants in our eyes, we, we esteem them highly, right? We name churches after them and hospitals after them, our own children after these men. Remember, as we begin our text this morning, that they were nobodies to the people they were being sent to. They were nobodies. They didn't know them from Adam. No pun intended. So with that, let's begin. Mark 6, 7 through 9, into our text. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs 
and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff only. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We are reminded of our heritage. We are reminded that you have used the foolishness of preaching to reach a lost world. And let it, Lord, let us be as these disciples. Learned, disciplined, commissioned, Lord, and sent to a world that will utterly reject your message. And let it be so. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Lord, you have not only ordained the means of our salvation through the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, you have ordained the method as well, the preached word, those that you have sent. Help us to hear the words Mark is writing. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the mid-1960s, the United States was engulfed in a war in the country of Vietnam. And being Americans, we were laden with heavy artillery. We flew in planes by the, we flew in supplies by the plane full. We flew in vehicles by the ship full. It took tons and tons of supplies and munitions to support the war effort of the United States. And part of our job in country was to train up and to equip and to advise, to teach the South Vietnamese how to conduct warfare. It was our job to impart our knowledge to them about how to defeat the Viet Cong. Yet as we came in with our, our lumbering machinery and our, our vast resources, our supposed expertise, we were met by a South Vietnamese army that had a very different take on warfare. One military advisor to the South Vietnamese, he records his time with them with amazement. As they were walking along in the jungle, they would, they would reach out to grab handfuls of leaves, never even stopping their march to put it in their pocket. And later they would boil those leaves for lunch. That's all. Later they would make a cup of rice, perhaps small scraps of other things along the way. They would sustain an army of thousands on basically nothing. And they were savage. They could fight they were fighting for the life and death of everything that mattered most to them. They had a job and they had a mission. They were not weighed down by cumbersome things. There was no fleet of trucks carrying bags of potatoes behind them. No, there was a nation to save and they needed to be quick about it. There was no time to lose and the enemy was very, very skilled. And so it is in our scene today. There was no time to lose. It was time to lay aside every weight. It was time to put into practice everything you've been shown. Everything that you've been taught up to this point. Well, there's much to see, so let's dive into our text this morning, beginning with verse 7. Mark 6, verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, I first need to make you aware of what we've just stumbled into. Let me first read for you verse 13. If you look just down on your page, a little sneak peek for tomorrow. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now, same page, skip right down to verse 30. 
Read there. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And what's right in the middle of that? The death of John the Baptist. What do we have here? We have marched right back into the deli for another tasty Markin sandwich. Oh, and indeed, instead of finding them annoying as an expositor, I've chosen to find them quirky and adorable. Purposeful, even for reasons I cannot always see. But remind me to ask Mark about his writing style when I meet him, please. I want you to be aware that we're in another Mark and Sandwich here, so you're prepared when we rejoin this story two weeks from now. As you know, we do not join the stories. We don't bring together the bread slices of the sandwich together. Because the Holy Spirit has inspired the author to write it just as he did. So we will preach it just as he did. However much it interrupts our flow. Now back to verse 7. And he summoned the twelve. Now why would he need to summon them? Weren't they already there? Aren't they just standing there? And Did Jesus just say, behold, I summon you? Well, no. Realize there were many who were following Jesus at this point. Some at different levels and different depths of commitment. Jesus had a lot of what we would describe as disciples, followers of Jesus. But Jesus was calling these 12 out. He was calling them out from among the rest. Yes, these had already been named as disciples. That's true. But this is their commissioning. They have been summoned. This was somewhat of a short-term mission trip, as it were, for these newly minted preachers. And as we'll see, this is exactly what they were. They were preachers. And Jesus Christ, Son of God, has summoned you. You are about to be ordained into the ministry, as it were. It's been said by some that the disciples never went through seminary, that they didn't have any training, that they just went out in the power of the Spirit. That's all you need. Don't need all that higher learning. Well, that's not true at all. On a timeline, we're over a year since Jesus began his first calling to his disciples. That is an entire year immersed and submerged in life with Jesus, hanging on his every word, watching how he handled people, watching how he dealt with the demonic and with the religious elite, listening to his teaching, walking with him, talking with him, sleeping next to him, being by definition discipled by him. So were these men trained and mentored? You better believe it. One year with Jesus, six years in seminary. I'll take the year with Jesus. Jesus did not just send them out there. The Son of God poured into them for a year. And John says at the end of his gospel that Jesus did and said so much that if the books, that the books of all the world could not even contain it. There's so much the disciples witnessed and heard. This was an intense, full immersion year of preparation. So don't be fooled into being intellectually lazy because some of the disciples were common fishermen with no education. They were trained and they were discipled. All saints on the battlefield should be the same. Well, back to our text. And began to send them out in pairs. Interesting. Well, this is a very common practice in this time. We see, it, we see it all over the book of Acts as well with Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. Very common. There's nothing super spiritual about it. This was for protection, for encouragement, for accountability. Not only that, but even the law of Moses establishes the requirement for two witnesses to be established. 
You needed two. If one man was going to go into the countryside making fantastic claims, you'd better have another to corroborate it. Makes sense. The second part of verse 7, and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, that's pretty neat. But we need to understand the why here and how that applies to Lanesville 2021. Why did Jesus give these 12 authority over unclean spirits, over the demonic? Very simple, to authenticate the message. The same goes for the capacity to heal by the apostles, to authenticate the message. The writer of Hebrews asks us, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Paul told the Corinthians, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. So these sign gifts, these healing gifts were largely relegated to the apostles. And it would go to logic that if every Christian were endowed in such ways, you'd have no way of identifying an apostle at all. Indeed, our own experiences in our lives tell us that while the miraculous has not ceased in the least, God is in the miracle working business. The manner, though, by which he does it and the reason for which he does it today has changed. The purpose in our text today for the empowering of the apostles was to show an unbelieving world that had no Bible. Listen to us. What we say is true. And if we make a claim to you today, if, if I make a claim to you today, you can open up your word and you can compare what I say to the word. And I pray that you do. These people had no such option. They couldn't go to the word to see if what these two men were claiming was true. That is the special domain of signs and wonders of creative healing and miracles. That's the reason. That was the purpose. So just to reiterate, though, do miracles happen today? You'd better believe it. God had never stopped being God. He has not changed. But the means and the method and the reasoning has been restored to normalcy within the Bible. We're now able to hold in our hands. So Jesus has summoned his twelve. By the way, if you'd like a reminder or a deeper study on why the number 12, why 12 disciples, listen to the sermon chosen and called in Mark 3 early in our series. We cover that in great detail. But he's summoned his 12 and Jesus is sending them out in pairs. He's given them authority over the demonic. Now, verse 8 and 9, Jesus is going to get specific with them. He's going to get specific with them on what they can bring. Now, this may seem like superfluous information for Mark to record, but we'll see that it is ever, ever so important. So verse 8 and 9, I'll read them as one. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff only. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And added, do not put on two tunics. Well, why the packing list here? There's many reasons. Let's dig into them. First, let's determine the tone of what is being said. Is, is Jesus kind of giving Martha Stewart advice on packing light here? Is this a suggestion? Is he merely instructing them? Well, the English isn't bad here, but it misses the emphasis. Instructed is perangelo. 
And this word is used in the context of a military command and demanded that the subordinate obey the order from the superior. It required unhesitating and unqualified obedience. So why does that matter here? Because something about what Jesus is about to say is of paramount importance. Yes, everything Jesus says is important, of course. But in this context of their mission trip, this must be obeyed. Which must mean Jesus has something to teach them by ordering this packing list. Their safety depends on it. Their growth as preachers of the gospel depend on it. And indeed, it does. So first part of our command is they should take nothing for their journey except. Meaning the list that follows are not the things you need to make sure you bring. This is all you can bring. This is it. Well, two years ago, my, my daughter Faith and I, we, we, harked, we hiked part of the Appalachian Trail together. And starting down in, starting down in Georgia, we had a wonderful time, but you know, half the pleasure of the hike is getting all the gear and learning how to pack. This is an art form for long distance hikers. Every ounce is carefully weighed, whether or not it's necessary. Even at the trailhead, there's, there's actually a scale for you to put your pack on. It's almost a show of pride with the hikers there, you know? Did you see that guy? He's, he's down to four pounds, 10.396 ounces. He must have gone with the light titanium spoon. What stood out in this text is a principle for the trail, for the hikers. They say that you pack your fears. You pack your fears. Now, don't tell someone that or they'll be self-conscious. Just let them pack their hiking pack and I'll tell you what they're afraid of. I was a living example of this. I had not heard this principle and we, Faith and I were well into our packing list when I heard this truth. And I looked at my packing list. I looked at my, my gear laid out on the floor. And my, da my daughter looked at me and she said, Dad, you're scared of going hungry. <laughs> I said, wow, you're absolutely right. That was my fear. I was overpacked on food. Every extra bit of space was given to another bar or another freeze-dried meal. My fear was evident. And as I read verses 8 and 9, I froze. No food. No food. More than that, no nothing. Anything the disciples would, would have or, or could have packed to alleviate their fears was gone. The clothing on your back, the shoes on your feet, a staff in your hands. What do you fear? You will have to confront it all on this trip. You will know what it is to understand the fountainhead of your provision. You want to know what it is to be a preacher of the gospel? All self-reliance is gone. You'll have to lean on me. He allows a staff only. A staff only, it says. This was a walking stick. It was also good for basic self-defense. Animals, certainly. Perhaps people in a limited sense. Though protection for people here is largely in God's hands on this mission. The second part of the list is what they can't bring. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Well, there's as much to tell us in what you can bring in, as in what you cannot bring. But Jesus already said, bring nothing except. He said, bring nothing except. So why go and make these specifics? He already told them, bring nothing but. This makes us look closely at these items. There's something to learn in each of these. Jesus wants his disciples, Mark wants us to grasp something here, to not miss it or gloss over it. So first is no bread. That's the one that made me shudder, even if it wasn't gluten-free. No bread. 
If anyone ever watched any kind of survival show, what is the person's biggest fear? What need are they immediately drawn to address? What need do you feel the quickest inside of you? What do you die without? Of course, food. Food. Most other things we can figure out, but no food. And that's the first thing that Jesus takes. Your very life is in my hands. I am the bread of life. Do not fear what you will eat. Take no bread. And if your faith can extend to being fed like the birds of the air, with no idea where tomorrow's meal is coming from, but your heavenly Father feeds them, this is the faith that will be required. Not worrying will be required. Take no bread. What else? Take no bag. Now, this is very interesting. When we see the word used for bag, it's, it's typically used as one that carries bread. This is not a bag for putting goods into, goods into socks and underwear. This type of bag was a food holder. It was specifically, the word is a bread holder. Now, that makes no sense. Why the redundancy? If you said bring no bread, why would you go and tell me not to bring a bread holder? A bread bag. Was Jesus just being redundant here? No, Jesus never wastes a word. Bread bags also held another function. They were also used by beggars in the same way as a tin cup. You would put out your bag to beg. This verse just got a lot more interesting. No bread bag. You are not to beg as someone who does not know the gracious provision of God. As someone who must grovel at humans' feet for what they need. When you can be bold in your faith because of the promise I give you today. Jesus is cutting off every avenue of provision here, but faith in him. They might say, well, we, we can't bring any food. And, and as we'll see here, they can't bring any money in their money belts. But I guess worst case scenario, if all else fails, we can beg. Nope, that's gone too. Every avenue that you have within your power to care for yourselves, you may not bring. You sat and you listened to the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. You had a front row seat to that sermon. And now it's go time. Does this really work in real life though? Come on, pastor. You don't understand. I have real bills to pay. I can't call the bank and give them a Jesus deposit. I live in real life here. What, real life like what you'll eat? Real life like what you'll drink? Real life like what you will wear, meaning to encompass all of your physical needs, housing. Jesus is talking about real life, as real as it gets, the very food that you put into your mouth. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. No bread, no food, no money belt and no tin cup to beg for money either. I'm your all in all. You will know on the other side of this mission what it means that I will take care of you. The whole world and everything in it is mine. 
I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I could easily give you a morsel of bread or a king's feast. Every day you're away. But whatever you get is from me. And it will be exactly what you need. Whether your comfort agrees or not. Well, what else on our list? Finishing off verse 9. But to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. So we get to have footwear. How exceptional. And in fact, some surmise that this was actually a concession of sorts by Jesus. Almost a, if you must. Because it was possible that some were not even wearing sandals. They might have been barefoot. And actually, we think that Mark hones in on an exception here. Because Luke's account of this very story says to not wear shoes. The principle is the same. We are traveling light. We are not to be encumbered or slowed down. Go, go, go. There's intensity in this command. The gospel is urgent. Oh Lord, let me go bury my father. No, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me, Jesus said. In fact, in Luke's account of this commissioning, of this ordination service, he even tells them in Luke 10.4, greet no one along the way. How unfriendly. What's up with that? How determined is someone who does not even look up as they are speed walking to where they're going? I spend lots of time in airports. Look at someone running for their gate at the airport. They have a goal. They have intensity. There's no chit chat. That's the intensity of the gospel. That's the urgency of this message. And do our lives reflect that? And he added, do not put on two tunics. Now, is this part of traveling light? How really could an extra tunic really weigh that much? Why this command? Well, in the ancient Middle East, there were many ways to flaunt your wealth. One of the most popular ways, besides your, your belt that you would wear, was to wear two tunics. One was more than sufficient. It doubled as sort of an undershirt or an overshirt, as a blanket. One was more than enough. But only the well-to-do wore two tunics. What is Jesus saying here? When you're commissioned in my gospel, your financial status is irrelevant. And it's often a distraction. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Poor, rich, doesn't matter. You're no better than anyone else around you. The more important thing about you is not what you wear or what you own. It's the message that you bring. Nothing is to stand in the way of or inhibit that message. If you wear two tunics, perhaps someone may listen to you because they believe you to be wealthy. That's human nature, isn't it? Don't we somehow desire to listen more to people who we perceive have money? Don't they get the best chair, the best seat? Do not let your possessions get in the way of the message. Jesus is saying you are to identify with the lowly. The rich are far, far more difficult to reach. And I can attest to that with absolute certainty. In my life as a tent maker, nearly all of my colleagues and co-workers are very, very wealthy. All millionaires, a few times over. And as I would engage them in, in matters of eternity and of the gospel, never had the principle of the camel and the eye of a needle rang more true. And on the other end of the spectrum, we would preach in the prisons. We would minister and we would counsel in the prisons to men that had lost it all. The extent of their possessions could be summarized in a few plastic bags in a locker. 
The response to the gospel could not be more different between the rich and the poor. Wear one tunic only. Can you afford two tunics? Fine. Put on one tunic, lest it distract from the message. You will identify with the lowly. I have nothing but caution for the wealthy. I have nothing but warning for riches. They are deceitful. They are a distraction, not only to you, but to those to whom I am sending you. So take one tunic only. These are quite the marching orders for these twelve. This is no doubt heaped upon the natural fear that already exists in their hearts. They're being sent out. Many of them had families. They're being sent out by twos into the unknown. These were ordinary men. Ordinary men. One year ago, they were throwing nets over their boat and some man on the shoreline with a, a draw that they could not explain asked them to come follow him. That he would make them fishers of men. And one year later, they have gone to fishing school. They've watched the master. They've hung on his words. They have seen enough to know that he is capable of performing all that he has promised to them. Are these disciples highly learned at this point? How's their understanding of Jesus, of, of who he is and what he came to do? Well, they have certainly been discipled and trained, but saints, we, we're going to walk right up to Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of Mark, and they still will not understand exactly what Jesus came to do. He will tell them 100 times that the Son of Man must be crucified, that he must be buried, and that he will rise on the third day. And they still don't get it. Thank goodness. If we all needed to be John MacArthur's to deploy for ministry, we would never go. You must fight with the weaponry you have. You must run with the sandals that you've been given. Jesus is telling the disciples in our text today, and he's telling Harrison Hills today, do not be encumbered. In this Christian life, we are traveling light. You are sojourners. You're pilgrims. This world is not your home. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the goal. He's the prize. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And because he is gone, because he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the Helper, the Holy Spirit has come. Pointing to Jesus, sealing you for the day of redemption, he's guarding you. And he's guaranteeing your salvation. He's comforting you. He's filling you. He's giving you wisdom. Not that you might heap this upon yourself, but that you might give it away. That we might go. That we might be sent. And saints, if you are equipped, you are sent. That's not a question. Don't worry about where He has called you or to whom He's called you to or what He's given you to accomplish the task. Maybe just a staff and some sandals. The Christian life is the great adventure. There is no greater adventure now go. Go to your neighbors. Go to your co-workers. Go to your friends and your family. Go to that country. Go, go, go. And he will be with you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, this text, Lord, in what looks to our natural eyes to be a packing list, you have embedded tremendous truth. Lord, you have given us words to live by. Lord, you've convicted our hearts. Lord, that we are not only to be discipled, that we are not only to be trained, but we are to go. Lord, that we are to fight with the weapons that you've given us, however big, however small. Lord, that we are to be in the fight, that we are to go, that we are to shine, that we are to put our lamp on the lampstand. Heavenly Father, we ask that this word would radiate in our hearts. We ask that it would be imprinted on our spirits. That it would alive, that it would awaken and alive and quicken our conscience as we are confronted with these things when we leave here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing your word. We ask, Lord, that it would calm us, Lord, that it would assure us, Holy Spirit, you have come to be our helper. We ask that you would remind us of these words. In Jesus' name, amen.